0: Good morning. We'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 17 to 24. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen.
1: Almost 3,000 years ago, a Greek man sat down to write what would become one of the most iconic stories of all time. This past week, I read about this classic story. You've probably heard of it. It's called The Odyssey. If you're not familiar with it or it's been a decade or eight since English lit class uh, in eighth grade, let me just bring you up to speed with a synopsis that I read. So the the hero of the story, Odysseus, embarks on this perilous journey. He must escape many dangers on his long voyage uh, home from the Trojan War, but none of the dangers is more deadly than the sirens. These mythical mermaids are beautiful and they are seductive, but their appeal is deceptive. In truth, They're murderous creatures that use their sweet singing to lure sailors to their deaths. Odysseus understands the danger. He knows he's vulnerable to their song. So he hatches a plan to sail past the sirens without succumbing to the sirens. So he asks his sailors to lash him to the mast of the ship. That way, even if Odysseus surrenders to the siren song, he will be unable to free himself to go to them. So he commands the sailors, don't loosen the ropes. No matter what I say, leave me tied up. No matter how much I plead with you to loosen me, don't do it. They must ignore him and continue the sailing. And to make sure that the sailors themselves aren't seduced, Odysseus has them stuff their ears with beeswax so that they won't hear the sirens singing. The plan works. As Odysseus suspected, when he hears the sirens, he is overcome with temptation. He tries to escape, and he pleads with the sailors to release him, but the sailors just tighten the ropes, and they continue to sail. The classic story provides us with a shrewd approach to temptation. Odysseus is wise to account for his weakness in the future. He sees the danger coming, and so he prepares for that danger. In our text today, Paul is wrapping up a section now that is designed to help us adapt shrewdly to our own temptation and all the temptations in our world. Like Odysseus, Paul wants us, the spirit wants us to see the danger ahead and prepare ourselves for it. And the best way to do that, according to Ephesians 6, is to prepare to do two things. First, put your armor on. Second, pull your weapons out. Put your armor on, pull your weapons out. What would you think about a cop who hopped in his squad car for the day without his bulletproof vest. Melody, who just read the scriptures here, whose husband is a cop, would probably not be very happy with him if he forgot to put his bulletproof vest on. You'd think he was acting foolishly, right? There's a lot of unstable, violent people out there, and he'd better be prepared or he's not going to make it home for dinner. He puts on that protective armor. But he doesn't just need armor for protection from the bad guys. He needs a weapon, too, to help him protect, protect him from the bad guys. A couple of weeks ago, Kenny... Uh, a guest speaker for us, helped us process how to put on our gospel armor. But when he wrapped up his message, Paul still wasn't done telling us how to prepare for the danger before us. Yeah, armor up, definitely armor up, but also get your weapons out. There are three weapons in our arsenal that we're going to talk through today. First is this, weaponize God's sword of the Spirit. Second, we're going to weaponize God's word in prayer, and then weaponize God's people through prayer. These are the three things that will tether us to the mast of God's truth. These are the beeswax that will fill our ears and our hearts to keep us from falling prey to a spiritual evil that is so pervasive in our world. Haven't you heard the siren song of the world and been drawn in by it? I have. Haven't you heard them singing their seductive song and longed to fit in with them? I have. Haven't you been lured into laughing at what God hates and mocking what God loves? I have. That's because there is a camouflage evil in this world that will settle for nothing less than your very eternal soul. Do you remember that first Harry Potter book or movie? Maybe you haven't seen them or read them. That's fine, no worries. Clinton, if you're in here, I'm not going to ruin the punchline. Don't worry. Um, But there's this one scene where Harry has been dragged to the zoo by his Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia and by his annoying little cousin Dudley. Uh, But as they happen upon the snake exhibit in the zoo, everything is good. They're just enjoying looking at all the reptiles. Normal trip to the zoo. Everyone behind the safety of the glass observing this gigantic python. Anyway, Harry, without even realizing it or meaning to, and because he is magical, causes the glass between him, the group of people looking at the snake, between him and the snake to disappear. And everyone flips out, as you can imagine, right? Running, screaming, panic immediately follows, much like it would be if we were there in the room with Harry. Chaotic fear. Why? Because no one trusts the snake. Remember that from last week? And once that protective barrier comes down, there was no protection from the snake. Ironically, the first way the devil manifests himself to our world is in the form of a snake in the garden. Trinity, I I, I am not sure we realize just how dangerous our mundane day-to-day lives are. We've been lulled to sleep. We have forgotten that the snake is on the loose. In this text, Paul wants us to have a realistic understanding of what we're up against. Our foe is every bit as dangerous as those sirens that endangered Odysseus, and way more so. There are effective weapons to fight, but we must not underestimate our foe. He is transcendently dangerous. Paul's concerned that we not bring a knife to a gunfight. I think that maybe we underestimate the enemy because of his camouflage. He's just hard to see sometimes. Miriam showed me this picture yesterday from her Insta feed, and it demonstrates well, I think, what we're up against uh, with that old snake. Now, believe it or not, there is a snake in that picture. Does anyone see a snake in the picture? You're lying if you raise your hand. (laughs) Maybe this will help. So they colored the snake, and I'll put them side by side so you can kind of compare where they actually are. Maybe you can see it, maybe you can't. (laughs) <laughs> the evil in this world works, I'll text you the picture if, you're, if, you, if you doubt me, okay? The evil in this world works so similarly. It is so hard to see. That's because the war that we're in as Christians is not a war with flesh and blood, but with supernatural evil powers. What is crazy about Paul's words here is that he says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But Paul is the dude who was stoned and beaten and imprisoned and run out of town and shipwrecked. His flesh was torn and his blood was spilt on countless occasions. And all that happened at the hands of other human beings. Not some kind of supernatural demonic being. What do you mean you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul? It's people with their hands and their stones and their chains that have cost you dearly. But I think Paul would answer, you're right. Flesh and blood is real and really dangerous, and it can be very evil. But what I mean is this. Wherever someone attacks me with words, with hands, with prison, with the sword, when things like these are happening, something else Is also happening. Something deeper, more terrible, more sinister than actually meets the eye. Surely human beings can oppose us in our spiritual warfare, but it's really, truly the prince of the power of the air that is working in and through those human beings to afflict that harm. When it comes to the brokenness we experience, we're not just dealing with human beings. Do you think that your souring marriage is just because of a rough patch? Do you think that your anxiety and depression is just related to your diet? Do you think that the politics behind COVID, one way or the other, was just politics? Nope. It's the devil trying to tear us apart. There's something more sinister at play than immediately eats the eye. Something meets the eye. Something devilish. Something supernatural under the guise, under the mask of natural. And if we don't walk onto the battlefield of our lives with these spiritual weapons, we will not win. We will lose. We need to listen to this text this morning. We'd be wise to not bring a knife to a gunfight. Just because the devil is hard to see doesn't make him any less real. And I bet if we just all... Take a second to stop and think. To stop our frantic pace of life and just consider the destruction and the insanity and the evil around us. It would be easier to admit that something really spiritually nefarious is actually going on. I worked at a camp in the summers during my college years and I remember one particular night that was quite scary but in the end turned humorous. In the dead of night, Everyone is sound asleep, snoring in their beds. Now, the the counselor always had a bed in the center of the cabin. And there would be a set of bunks over here and a set of bunks over here. And then in front of you, there would be another two sets of bunks. Uh, And so I'm laying there in my bed asleep. um, And there are nine of us jammed into this little cabin. You know, like 7th, 8th, and ninth graders or something. It smelled great. But one week there was this guy who was 300 pounds. But not like a flabby 300, like a super solid 300. Uh, he, was, he was a rock. And for whatever reason, he wanted to sleep on the top bunk right over here, right over here in front of me. Uh, well, one night, we all woke up to this gigantic thunderclap. I mean, it was the loudest thunder that you ever heard because it was right in your face. You would have thought a bomb had blown up in our cabin. I have, never, I have never heard anything like it since. Only it wasn't a bomb. It was this dude, bro, had somehow fallen off the edge of his bed and blown a hole in the floor of our cabin. Bam! Like that. Scared us to absolute death. And I'm not kidding. In the years since, I have legit prayed to have the sleeping skills of this guy because the dude didn't even wake up. Bro just dropped an A-bomb, and he's sleeping like a baby doped up on NyQuil or something. I don't know. I tried waking him, and he just kept sleeping. I could not wake him until finally he roused into a sort of like vegetative state. He was like sleep talking or something. I don't know how to explain it. I'll never forget it. He just kept saying, I can hear you, but I can't see you. I can hear you, but I can't see you. I can hear you, but I can't see you. He probably said it like a hundred times. I'm not, I'm not uh, overestimating there. Uh, in his subconscious state, he knew something was going on in the cabin. Something or someone was out there probably trying to help, but he couldn't see me in his sleep walking haze. I honestly do not remember how we got the guy back up into his bed. Maybe he just spent the night on the floor because none of us could lift him. But anyway, I think we may all in our spiritual lives operate like this guy. We can kind of sense something is going on in the world. Even an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, you'd probably say, yeah, something is up, something evil, something being orchestrated by an almost unspeakable darkness. But we have a hard time identifying and articulating evil's distinguishing marks we can sense it but we can't see it we can sense it but we can't see it and before long if we can't really see it we become numb to its reality and to its presence and to its danger and to its insidiousness we kind of sleepwalk through life unaware of the flagrant spiritual evil that threatens to undo us every single day but church we can't We cannot forget. We cannot afford to sleep on these things. There's a real evil that is coming after our souls. I wonder if the rhythms of your life and the rhythms of my life reflect the imminent danger that we are all constantly in. Does your life reflect the reality of verses 11 and 12? Have you intentionally at all recently slowed your role to armor up, to get your weapons out, Look at verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The schemes of the devil, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. Could anything be further from reality and backward and more outdated than this? Maybe some of you today consider a belief in a Satan flanked by demons to be on par with believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, who in our house forgot to do his job last night, FYI. Um, I found out this morning. Um, maybe you think that believing in Satan is like that, or like believing in a flat earth. I think this is very American of us. It's the snobbery of the wealthy, sanitized West to think that there is not immense evil in this world that cannot just be explained by just a bad apple in the bunch. It's an extensive, prolific, dark, oppressive evil, but it's camouflaged. And it's not just in Russia. It may be more blatant right there right now, more obvious, But it's not like the evil of America is behind closed doors anymore. It's just camouflaged. We're up against an enemy that we, in and of ourselves, have no business being in the ring alone with. I think one of the plays the devil is running right now is to get us fixated on an evil atrocity like Russia, and we should be, but we should not allow the subtler forms of evil cloaked in the language of acceptance and love here in our country, to go unchecked in our souls. There is real, anti-God, anti-biblical evil in our world, and it has been there since the garden. From the cradle to the grave, your life is war. You believe that? Your soul, your mind, your body, your family, your career, are all the fields of conflict between good and evil. The snake isn't behind the glass anymore. So Paul says in verse 18, You can see it? Keep alert with all perseverance. That is battlefield language. Keep your head on a swivel. Be alert. And he calls us to go to war with the powerful weapons of war that we've been given. So the first one here, we're called to weaponize God's sword of the spirit. We find this weapon in verse 17. Paul calls on us to take up the sword of the spirit, which he defines there as the word of God. Now, why is it called the sword of the spirit? What's that language come from? Well, it's in keeping with his battlefield imagery, right? He's got a weapon here, a sword. But it's the spirit's sword because of who breathed out the words of this book, of God's word. Look at Second Peter 1. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was the divine agent who carried or led, or directed, or conducted all of the authors of Scripture so that they were writing, what they were writing was God breathed Scripture. One theologian provides a helpful metaphor here. He says, As those godly men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, He superintended their words and used them to produce the Scriptures. As a sailing ship is carried along by the wind to reach its final destination, so the human authors of Scripture were moved by the Spirit of God to communicate exactly what He desired. In that process, the Spirit filled their minds, souls, and hearts with divine truth, mingling it sovereignly and supernaturally with their unique styles, vocabularies, and experiences, and guiding them to produce a perfect, inerrant result. If you've ever wondered how you got that thing that's sitting in your lap right now, that's it, right there. That's how we got our Bibles. So it's the sword of the Spirit because the Spirit is the swordsmith. He crafted this thing and he breathed out the words. Right here, this is your sword in spiritual battle. We saw Jesus wield it in the wilderness when the devil came after him and we'll need to wield it when the devil comes after us. Trinity, no matter what the issue, don't sheathe the sword. You're gonna keep needing it. Draw it every day. We stand firm in the Lord by jabbing at Satan and his lies with this sword over and over and over again all our days. You know, there are probably a million ways to apply the use of this weapon in our lives that we could talk through this morning. One recently for me has been on our way to school each day in the car. We sing this song together. Some of your kids I know are familiar with it. Maybe you are too. We sing it every day on the way to school. It's called Jesus strong and kind and one of the lines in that song says this jesus says that if i thirst i should come to him no one else can satisfy i should come to him so at the same time i'm singing that song i'm reflecting back on john 4:14, 4, where jesus says whoever drinks of the water that i will give him will never be thirsty again So this text of John 4, 14 and its truth and the song are filling my mind and heart even as the words to that song are filling my mouth. And I'm actively weaponizing those words from John 4 in anticipation of the temptations that I know are coming at me that I'm going to face that day. I even visualize as I'm driving the car, I'm visualizing the temptations and I am visualizing cutting them down to size with this text. Jesus satisfies me more than this thing that I want that I shouldn't have, and I will not fall prey to this temptation. In doing this, I'm whipping out my spiritual sword, and I'm going to war early in the morning by weaponizing God's sword and song. That's just a small example. There are bajillion times where I've failed to do this, and I'm sure you would echo that same experience. But our spiritual sword is only as as effective as our biblical fluency. Your spiritual sword is only as effective as your biblical fluency. We need to know God's words to fight God's enemies. You need to know God's words to fight the enemy. Find ways to hide God's word in your heart. Reading, memory, prayer, song. It's your only hope in the battle. Weaponize the word of God. The next weapon we see here in the arsenal is prayer. Weaponize God's word in prayer. Look at 18. Praying at all times in the spirits with all prayer and supplication. I don't think we should make too much out out of the nuance here between prayer and supplication. I think he's just repeating himself for emphasis here. Prayer is like Odysseus strapping himself to the mast. It protects us from our vulnerabilities. And our souls are never not in danger, so we should be constantly in prayer. So he says, pray at all times. There are three alls here. Pray at all times. Verse 18, pray with all perseverance in 19, and then pray for all of God's people. Obviously, reading between the lines here, you should be able to tell that prayer is incredibly important to your relationship with God. And probably pretty unimportant to many of us, if we're being honest at least in terms of our day-to-day pursuits and rhythms? How often are you wielding the sword of the Spirit in prayer? Now, we hear this term prayer. We've heard it a bajillion times in our life. What even is prayer? We probably have our own idea of what it looks like and sounds like, our own unique take. But from this text and many others, here's a definition, I think, a broad enough definition that we can all agree on. It's this. Prayer is intentionally engaging with God, to build a relationship with him and seek alignment with his spirit-breathed purposes. That's what prayer is. So I want to take each of those underlying portions really quickly, piece by piece. First, prayer requires intentional engagement on your part. It doesn't just happen by accident. When Jesus talks about prayer in Matthew 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. There's a certain, like, deliberateness about this, right? It, re- it requires a choice, And movement, if not just movement of heart, sometimes movement of your body, physically, towards prayer. Go into your room and shut the door. But it's also deeply relational. Jesus likens it to hanging out with him for dinner. That's what he likens prayer to. When he describes the intimacy that he desires with us in prayer, he talks about it like us coming over to his place for dinner. Uh, Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you don't want to miss out on that happy, heavenly place with Jesus, then pray. But it's also deeply submissive. We are called to align with all of God's spirit-breathed purposes. Just before the cross, Jesus asked to be released from the gigantic task in front of him. But what does he say? He says, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours. He's asking But he's also aligning himself with God's purposes and plans. Jesus shows us that prayer is less about moving God's hand than it is about moving your own heart and aligning it with God's hand, his purposes, his sword, as it were. How will we know what's in alignment with God's purposes? How will we know even what to pray when we're on our knees? The answer today is in our text, verse 18 by praying in the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but praying in the Spirit sounds a little bit spooky to me at first. But I don't think that praying in the Spirit is a reference to being overwhelmed in some kind of trance while we are praying. No, praying in the Spirit is praying in accordance with the way the swordsmith has expertly crafted this unique weapon. That's why our little prayer definition a couple minutes ago said, seek alignment with God's Spirit-breathed purposes. If the Spirit's the one who crafted it, who breathed it, who created it, if it's his sword and he's given us access to this vast arsenal, then we should pray to him directly to the Spirit. Ask him for the right words and the right moments that would help us slay all the aggressive adversaries that we are up against. I think that's what Paul means here by praying in the Spirit. Praying in the boundaries and in the safety of the words that the Spirit has breathed out for us. You know what this tells us? It tells us something crazy. It tells us that the Word of God, as powerful as it is in its own right, is itself enhanced by the prayers of God's people. The power of God's Word is enhanced by the prayer of God's people. This is crazy. Some things happen only because they were prayed for. And so we can presume that they would not have happened if they were not prayed for. Trinity, if you want to survive the onslaught of the enemy, you're going to need this close at hand at all times, wielding it through prayer. For our friends who have deconstructed their faith and moved on, it's because they have distanced themselves from their weapon. They grew embarrassed of it. They grew suspicious of it. They grew irritated by its boundaries. And instead of using this weapon through prayer to kill off their embarrassment or suspicion or irritation, they let their suspicion and embarrassment kill off their dependence on the weapon. When temptation hits, seize your weapon. When a trickle of lust sneaks its way into your soul snuff it out with the sword jesus satisfies when the poison of greed starts whispering cheat on your timesheet do timesheets exist anymore anybody still fill out timesheets okay good when the temptation sneaks in kill it with god's sword jesus is better than the extra 100 bucks Lodge these words deep into your bones through reading and singing and memorizing so that you can weaponize them in the heat of battle against whatever sin struggle you're up against in the moment. Paul Miller says that in moments like these, if we are not praying, then we are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all we need. Oof. All the money and talent in the world won't win you nothing in this battle that you're in. The snake is too big for you, too powerful, too shrewd and cunning. We need the Lord. We need to pray. We need to weaponize this word through prayer. Without prayer, you will not win. There are battles to be won by prayer in the spirit that will be lost without prayer in the spirit. Do you believe that? You can win more than you're winning now by wielding this weapon. Now, Don't get this twisted this morning. God doesn't need your prayers. You do. God's spirit isn't helpless without our moving him or unleashing him or activating him in some way. He can and still will do what he wants, but in some mysterious way, our prayers actually matter. Through prayer, God is aligning our hearts with his heart and his will, and he's doing this in a a way that we never could on our own. Third weapon Weaponize God's people through prayer. Final brief point here. Another weapon in the arsenal of this all-out war is your fellow soldiers, your fellow Christians. In other words, you're not in a foxhole all alone, Trinity. You're not by yourself. You've got all kinds of saints around you to hold your arms up, to refasten your armor, to refill your ammunition. If that's true for you, that you've got people to help you with this, then it must mean that you are here. Part of the reason that you are here is to refasten armor and refill ammunition too. One way, maybe the most important way to do that, is through prayer. The call to prayer broadens here from just ourselves to all the saints. And it is especially the courage to wield the sword of truth in our normal lives that Paul is calling us to pray for. So look down at verses 18 and 20. In the middle of 18, he says, Make supplication for all the saints. Skip to 19. And also for me, he says. Pray for them, pray for me. Paul himself needed the courage to speak truth with boldness. So he begged for his friends to pray that the Spirit would wield his sword to do surgery in his heart. He wanted his friends to pray that the Word would have its way in his heart, and he wanted to be bold enough to proclaim it can I beg you to please pray this for me or pray this for anyone who speaks or preaches up here. Pray that we would declare it faithfully from this place, that we would not shy away from it, but like Paul prayed or asked to be prayed for, that we would proclaim it boldly. Then bust out your membership directory and pray this prayer too. Pray it for every member day by day. Pray through those membership directories. Those little lines in there, if you remember, you've seen them. Right there in those lines and pray for the people that are a part of this army. Here's the thing. If we want to survive this battle, we have to survive together. This is a truth that is just laced from Genesis to Revelation. It's baked into the whole thing. We need one another, and I wonder if your life rhythms reflect this. Are you like a a Sunday-only 10 to eleven thirty, kind of Christian? Or does your life, Monday to Saturday, reflect that you are a needy Christian and that if you want to survive the battle, you've got to do it together? And we survive together by praying for each other. And just look at the flavor of this prayer here, church. It is bent on gospel proclamation, not on self-preservation. Gospel proclamation, not self-preservation. Look at verse 19. He says, pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he's in chains. He's literally in prison writing these words. So I mean, if if you and I are writing the book of of this letter of Ephesians out to some churches, and we're sending out prayer requests in our little prayer letter from prison, I think, pray that God would get me out of here might top the list of my prayer list. But not Paul. The sword of the Spirit had cut down his selfish priorities and reoriented him to kingdom priorities. So prayer in the Spirit changes our priorities. Prayer by this book changes our priorities. Not that the chains would go away, but that the gospel would be preached. The reason the Father gives us the gift of prayer is because Jesus has given us a mission Jesus has given us, God has given us prayer because we have a mission, not so that our obstacles would soften. Prayer is like a walkie-talkie on the battlefield. It's how we stay in constant contact with our commander-in-chief. But I bet, if you're being honest this morning, and I am, we haven't really found ourselves in need of a walkie-talkie very often, have we? Because most of us are content to sit on the sidelines watching a precious few go to war in our place. Much of our weakness in prayer comes from the fact that we are not at all living like we are on active duty. But we are. We all are. You need to weaponize your fellow believers through prayer. And you need to be weaponized too to tell your family member, your friend at the gym, your next door neighbor about the mind-blowing glorious resurrection power of Jesus. This is why we desperately need our fellow believers to hop on their walkie-talkies on our behalf, and why you need to do the same for them. We have to go together, Trinity. I mean, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go without helping anyone else, go alone. But if you want to go far, and you want the people around you to go far, to endure to the end. We've got to go together. A couple of years ago, I told you all about my redwood discovery. But I think it might be a good time to bring it back. I was reading about the giant redwoods in California, and I was reading about their root systems, how they are not proportional to the size of the trees. These trees gain their stability, not by diving a mile into the ground, as you might expect, because they go a mile up into the sky, They don't get their stability by going into the ground, but instead by intertwining with the roots around them. Each of these trees' root systems is both needy for other trees and needed by other trees. They need them and they're needed by them. In the same way, you are both needy for this church and the prayers of this church and you are needed by this church and your prayers for the other members in this church. All of us We alone, we do not have the strength to go on. None of us has the strength to stay the course. Our root systems are not strong enough. None of us. But what Ephesians 6 is saying is that together we can go far all the way into eternity. Together we can endure. As our root systems grab hold of one another we can make it to the end, still standing in this battle when God calls us home. Like Odysseus we need to make plans before the temptation comes. Make plans to armor up and to use every tool at your disposal in the arsenal. If you've slacked on your Bible reading and prayer, commit now to re-engage and grow in Bible and gospel fluency. It's only a matter of time before that snake comes back out and you want to be ready. These are the weapons that will tether us to the mast of God's truth and help us fend off the sirens of the evil one. So as we wrap up our time together this morning, in this text, and then also in Ephesians, I want to do a final callback to the opening paragraph of Ephesians to remind us of something incredibly hopeful to remember while we're slugging it out with Satan. The war we fight in Ephesians 6 is simply an extension of the war that we see in Ephesians 1. And here's what we learned about the last scene of the battle in Ephesians 1. We learned this. Satan is not Jesus' equal, and the outcome isn't in question. In the face of Satan, we don't panic. Jesus defeated him on that cross. Flip back to Ephesians 1, or you can follow along on screen, actually. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. What is that mystery? He set forth this mystery in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here's what's coming to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That right there is how things end on the battlefield. When the last blow is delivered, this will be the picture, the beautiful, unified, victorious picture. But clearly right now, heaven and earth, are, they're out of sync. That much is obvious. There is no heaven on earth right now. They cannot be pulled together, heaven and earth, unless heaven is to be tainted with sin, which could never happen, or if earth is to be cleansed of its brokenness. But right now, heaven and earth are like oil and water, or like your laptop when the internet goes down. There's just there's no sink. Jesus came to restore the sink, to pull heaven and earth back together. This means he must die for sinners. He must redeem them. And when the last sinner in Jesus' family is redeemed, the sink will be complete and a new age will be introduced. It's just like this. That's still to come. In the meantime, we fight the spiritual war with spiritual weapons with Jesus' return in view. Ephesians was written to show us that all of our choices whether it's marriage or parenting or at work, church unity, racial reconciliation, all of them ought to declare the victory of Jesus Christ. And every moment that you stand and resist the lies of the devil is a reminder to the world and to the devil that ultimately he is lost and that his final defeat is coming soon. So we stand together in God's strength Armored up in the gospel and piercing the darkness with the sword of the Spirit, we stand in the cosmic victory of Jesus. He's already won the decisive victory, and one day he is returning to end the war altogether. Until then, the war between Satan and Jesus is being fought in our lives and in our souls, in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, on our screens of our phones. But make no mistake, cosmic unity in Jesus is the inevitability of our redemption. Hang on to that hope. There's this line from that Avengers movie, Endgame, that highlights where the whole of history is headed. Thanos shoves off Iron Man and prepares to snap his fingers, which is a major plot point that I will not ruin for you this morning. But as he gets ready to snap, he says... I am inevitable. In other words, Iron Man, Tony Stark, no matter what you try to do, how you try to dethrone me, how you try to erase me, it's all useless because in the end, Thanos wins. It's inevitable. But the same thing in the opposite direction is true about our world. Jesus is inevitable. Ephesians 1.10 is inevitable. God made known to us the mystery of his will, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. This is the end for which you and I were made, to contribute to the unifying of all things in Jesus Christ. It's inevitable. You might as well join in. Armor up, weapons out. The thread that weaves all of history together is Jesus. Since before the foundation of the world, God has been scheming and planning according to his good pleasure about how to make Jesus the focal point of all of history and of salvation and ultimately of the universe. This is totally, it's almost impossible, almost as impossible as seeing that snake. It's almost impossible to see now. But this is where we are headed. Jesus is why you are here. Jesus is why I am here. Jesus is the gravitational pull of history. The centrifugal, The centrifugal force of all time is pulling us to an inevitable end. The unity of all things in Jesus. So we don't run from Satan in fear. We stand in faith. That's the victory. Armor on, weapons out. I'm going to close now by quoting a hymn that many of us are probably familiar with. Musicians, you guys can come on up at this time. Once we're done singing, the communion people can come up at that time. Um, But uh, Martin Luther wrote this just about 500, like 495 years ago. I looked it up this morning. And I almost bet that Luther had Ephesians 6 open when he was penning these words to a mighty fortress is our God. See if you can hear echoes of Ephesians 6 while I read these for us, and then we're going to sing them together. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Still, our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He is armed with cruel hate. On earth, not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who this might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Oh, the prince of darkness is grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts and the weapons are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So let's sing this song like the battle is real, because it is. But more than anything, let's sing this like a battle chant, like the victory is ours, because it is in Jesus. Stand with me, and we'll sing together.